This is Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your official home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. What's up, everybody? Welcome into a Thursday edition of Hockey Central 960. Haley Salvian here with you for the next hour. And after two long days of no hockey we have some hockey tonight eastern conference finals begin it's the carolina hurricanes versus the florida panthers game one goes tonight six o'clock mountain time that'll be eight o'clock eastern for anybody listening on demand later on today before puck drop and that is a reminder that you can listen live to the show tuesday through friday at two o'clock or on demand Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. So this uh, this matchup is quite interesting because I guess for a few reasons, they're almost the unlikely opponents in the Eastern Conference Final. I think if you would have asked people a few weeks ago before the playoffs started, who's going to be in the Eastern Conference Final? It's going to be the Boston Bruins, um, maybe the Carolina Hurricanes, but I think a lot of people started to write this team off. I think more people were looking at the Rangers or the young gun, skilled, fast New Jersey Devils. I sure uh, went in on the Devils wagon at certain points during this postseason. Um, but, you know, when you look at the Florida Panthers, they just snuck into the playoffs and they weren't expected to even win a single game against the Boston Bruins. Uh, they beat Boston in seven. They beat Toronto in seven. Now, here they are in the Eastern Conference Final. The other team was kind of written off or at least overlooked due to injuries and questions about their offensive production. Well, that hasn't been a problem. And one of those players that was injured, Tavo Teravine, and he is expected to be back tonight for the Carolina Hurricanes after taking morning skate. Rod Brindamore said he was feeling good after practice and gave him the thumbs up. So expect Tara Vinen back. I think this is going to end up being a, a pretty good series. These two teams, uh, if you look at some of the models, like our first guest of the show today, Dom Luce-Chishin, his model has this being a fairly tight season. The Canes do have the edge in his model. Uh, but I think one of the really interesting storylines heading into this, and maybe it's just interesting because the media are making a big deal of this, as we typically do when we're looking for storylines to latch on to, is the relationship between Paul Maurice and Rod Brindamore. Of course, uh, Paul Maurice coached Rod Brindamore with the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, yes, Rod was playing, you know, in 2010 at the end of his career. Paul Maurice was the coach at that point, and Paul Maurice was the coach that benched Rod Brindamore. He was the coach that played Rod Brindamore five minutes, and he was the coach that took the C off Rod Brindamore and gave it to Eric Stahl. Uh, Christine Simpson from Hockey Night in Canada and Sportsnet, she has a big feature on that coming uh, on the pregame on Sportsnet. So if you're interested in that story, uh, definitely make sure you watch uh, Hockey Central and the pregame show to get more on that. There's a little bit of spice in that story. Lots of history behind the benches for both of these teams. Uh, but to tee up this matchup and look at the playoffs a little bit more, we're going to go to our first guest, as I mentioned, of the show. It's Dom Luce-Chishin from The Athletic, and he joins us now on the Atlas Pizza Guest Hotline. Dom, how are we doing? Are you excited for this spicy feature about Rod Brennamore and Paul Maurice, or is that just me? I... I didn't even think of that angle, but I, I guess I'm excited now. Uh, I didn't hold Paul Maurice into high regard uh, going into the season. I thought it was a bit of a baffling move that Florida went from brunette to him, but I think he 
has done two big things uh, to single-handedly turn this season around. The first one was calling his players expletive late in terms against Toronto <laughs> en route to earning a playoff spot. And the other one was putting up six fingers in game one against the Leafs and <laughs> making sure that his angelic Florida Panthers uh, don't get calls. And I think both of those Things have uh, his team in the third round now. Yeah, I mean, he seems to know what he's doing, at least when it comes to to pulling some strings. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, this series does start tonight. Um, it's one of the best defensive teams in the league in Carolina versus the team that everyone kind of keeps betting against in Florida. As I mentioned, nobody thought they were even going to win a single game against the Bruins. They kind of like having this chip on their Excuse shoulder. Me. What? Did you bet on them? I sure did. You bet on Florida to beat who? Boston. You did? Yeah, I I bet on that. I didn't I didn't think they would win. I picked Boston, um, but I thought the odds were a little out there, and I thought the series would be a lot closer than people were making out to be. I thought it would go to seven, which it did. I just thought Boston would prevail, and mm. I was happy to see Florida win that bet. It wasn't one I expected to win, but. Under their underlying numbers weren't far off from Boston's. I think the two teams just had very differing percentages this season that sort of changed perceptions. And in the playoffs, anything can happen. And they, the chances were a lot closer, and it swung in, in Florida's direction. I thought they were really <laughs> underrated going to the playoffs. And even before the playoffs, I think I was one of those people who had the, their odds of even making it highest and right. there was a point where they were 55 to 1 to win the cup and I bet on them then too so it's looking <laughs> looking okay okay so smart move on you I mean I thought that they were gonna lose in six I think is what I initially said but I do think there were a lot of people who wrote them off at least Matthew Kachuk had created that narrative in his head when he started his villain yeah. origin story in that first round series. Um, but looking at this matchup between Florida and Carolina, I mean, how do you evaluate uh, these two teams going up against each other and how they match up? I think it's a matchup of two contrasting styles and ideologies. Obviously, the big thing is how similar they attack in terms of forechecking. But I think for Florida, that is, a way to create offense and for Carolina it's a way to keep the puck away from the defensive zone and play defense I think that's part of what makes Carolina such a great defensive team is that they don't play there very often they grind you into submission and Florida I think grinds you but it's in a way of trying to create offensive chaos and we saw that done pretty well against two strong defensive teams in Boston and Toronto and Carolina, I think has a bit of a more stronger defense group that can maybe handle that four check, but we'll see. And I, I think the other thing is, is that Florida has these bright offensive stars. It's not just Kachuk. There's also Barkov, Carter Verhage starting to get some recognition. Uh, Sam Reinhart is a great underrated player. Uh, and then Brandon Montour keeps, scoring goals from the back end, whereas Carolina has just uh, really just Sebastian Ajo now that uh, Andrei Svechnikov has been sidelined during these playoffs. Mm -hmm. 
do you think some of Carolina's depth players have enough in the tank to get them to the cup final? Because I do think they've at least shown that their secondary scoring guys can come up when it matters. It's Paul Stasny in the first round. It's Jordan Martinook in the second round, either coming up in the whole series or in big games, big moments. Do you think a guy like Martinook would have enough in the tank in the third round to kind of keep this going? It seems like the Canes system and style of play allows them to kind of have any guy, no matter who it is, kind of step up. They just all seem to to put in that work. Yeah, I think depth is their calling card. It's what has gotten them this far. I think last year, a lot of those depth players were able to score a bit more than expected. And this year, it was the opposite. And that sort of had people wondering whether Carolina had the, the scoring punch to get this far. But I guess a lot of those guys were just saving for the playoffs. And Martin up during the second round was... Especially potent. Uh, the one player I am looking towards here is maybe someone like Martin Neches, who hasn't had the strongest postseason so far, but maybe can can get going and be the next guy to step up uh, in the first round. A lot, even though Stafney had a few big goals, it was it was really all just the Sebastian Aho show. I think they scored only like 1.1 goals for 60 with Aho off the ice, and the big thing in the second round is that changed completely and that has that helped them beat the Devils in only five games who's the favorite in this series as you look at it right now whether it's like the way that you're looking at it um whether it's the model like who who do you think kind of has the edge in round three I think it's Carolina that's what my model says that's what a lot of odds makers say and I think a lot of other models say that as well I think a lot of people myself included, kind of wrote Carolina off as someone to put on upset watch because they were missing Sveshnikov and they were kind of banged up and they didn't look like they could really score. And I think now that they're in the third round, people can sort of respect that Carolina's system trumps whatever individual player is within it. And I think Mm -hmm. Florida's going to have a tough time cracking that sort of defensive system. They had a good time forging at the Leafs defense but I think facing a team that forechecks even harder than they do is going to be tough with how weak defensively uh, Florida's defensemen are. I was talking to somebody today for a story that I'm working on kind of more specifically on Rod Brindamore's impact on on that team but it was interesting this this person was saying like the Carolina Hurricanes might be the best like total team when you look at the way that they play as a team, like they might be the best one that's left and they might not be super sexy. Like you're not going to see a ton of toe drags. You might not see a bunch of highlight reel goals, but that's just a team. It sounds very cliche, but they'd said to me, like that's a team where the only thing that matters is like the scoreboard, not how fancy they are. And it, it might not be the most fun system to watch, but it it sure seems to be working this time of year. Yeah. I think the biggest embodiment of that is that their best player has six points and is a defenseman. So let's talk about Jacob Slavin because you had a story um, Con Smythe, tracking the Con Smythe candidates and a, a big part of that was devoted to Slavin and his impact on this series and why he should be the front runner right now. What's, uh, what's his um, impact on the series? I assume you were talking about Jacob Slavin there. That is, yeah, that is <laughs> That is the okay. I, was I, picked, for I halfway through that, I was like, wait mind. a second. Who's he, ta- <laughs> who's he talking about? Uh, yeah. Uh, Corey, who has covered the 
Hurricanes for a while, wrote a story, I think, earlier this week or maybe last week about how Rod Brindamore himself, a defensive legend who is coaching this very team and knows what it takes to play good defense, said that Slavin is the best to ever do it from a shutdown standpoint. And obviously that might be a bit of bias considering he's Slavin's coach, but I think he knows a thing or two in that regard. I don't think he's far off with the way Slavin has played in these playoffs. And Carolina is just a very, very different team depending on whether Slavin is on or off the ice. When he's on, they've outscored teams 15 to three at five on five. They have 62% of the expected goals and even shorthanded, they're outscoring teams. That's how good Slavin has been in all facets of the game. And when he's off the ice, it's been a completely different story. They've been outscored 18-12, and they only get 47% of the expected goals. So if you just watch Slavin play, he's a very quiet player, obviously, but he doesn't let the other teams do literally anything. And I think... People will always look for MVP awards and consmice in terms of offense and that sort of thing. And you might want to go towards someone like Sebastian Ajo on Carolina for that reason. But Carolina is here because they play such great defense and Slavin is at the center of that. And I looked at past consmice winners on the back end, McCarr, Keith, and Hedman. And Slavin's impact, even if he's not scoring as many points as those guys, is pretty much on par with them. Looking at some of the other kind of most impactful players in the postseason right now, I mean, it seems like this, for all the talk about, you know, there's no superstars left or like, oh, look at all the guys who aren't in the playoffs anymore. I mean, some of the top, you know, most effective guys left are are in this specific series. It's Jacob Slavin, it's Matthew Kachuk, Brent Burns, Carter Verhage. Um, You know, how would you kind of look at the the top guys who are about to start facing off tonight? Yeah, I think a lot of those guys are underrated because these are smaller markets. Obviously, it's not going to be Crosby, McDavid, Matthews, but Matthew Kachuk is right there in the top five players in the world conversation. Verhage is really turning into not just an elite forward, but someone who is a big-time gamer in the playoffs who just always seems to elevate his game, and he's just so dynamic and such a treat to watch, and if Slavin is in your cup of tea because he's a pure shutdown defenseman, his partner Brent Burns is chaotic and fun and can bring <laughs> some big goals and big hits and do the things that I think people want to see from a star. And they also have Sebastian Ajo, obviously, who I think is one of the better players at creating something from nothing because that's sort of what you have to do in Carolina's system where it's just forecheck and grind all the time. How much does uh, Tavo Teravainen's return sway things for Carolina's chances? I believe you looked at that in the the series preview. Did that kind of give them, you know, a little bit of an uptick in the in the model? Yeah, just a little bit. I going into the series, it was interesting. I had Carolina and Florida dead even. Uh, they had slightly different ratings, but because Carolina is so good defensively. Uh, when you looked at how likely they were to beat Florida on home ice, it was the same as Florida's chances of beating Carolina on home ice. So it was interesting in that way. And Tavo Teravine sort of tilted the scales just ever so slightly back in Carolina's favor, where they become just a single percentage point more likely to beat Florida. And 
the entire edge in this series is that Carolina has Terrabinen back, and they also have home ice, which has been extremely important to them through the last two playoffs. Well, it's interesting because like one's a really good road team, the other's a really good home team, as you mentioned. Do you which yeah. one do you think will ultimately budge? Do you think the Canes will end up having that <laughs> because they're the really good home team? Like it's interesting because Florida's very good on the road, so it's like the you know immovable object, mm-hmm. unstoppable force. I don't, I never, I never get that one right, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Um... <laughs> I think it's been very strange this postseason where road teams in general have won a large majority of games. I think it's like 57% or something. And Florida's obviously been a big part of that and a big story, but it's not something I would expect to continue. Usually home ice advantage in the playoffs is larger, not smaller. And I think Carolina will impose their will a bit at home and sort of get some regression to the mean for the home teams in that front. Who's the Stanley Cup favorite right now, Dom, uh, according to, to your model at The Athletic? Uh, it is Carolina, but it is just so close right now. I think this is one of the most interesting Final Fours that we've had in a long time. Obviously, there are people who are sort of crying about it being non-traditional markets, but I think before the playoffs, all four of these teams, they might not have been the favorites, like Boston, Colorado, Edmonton, Toronto, but they were all in that next tier of like dark horse teams who can make noise. And it's sort of interesting to have four teams who are sort of equally rated who are in these tight matchups and have these distinct styles fighting it out for non-traditional market supremacy. Um, and looking at the rest of your cons, my favorite list, as we kind of move on from the discussion about Carolina and Florida and just look more at this final four, is Jack Eichel kind of the MVP for Vegas right now when we're thinking of a con Smythe? We're thinking how open it is. Okay, Vegas Golden Knights, that's a team without a ton of holes. Yes, there's questions with, with their goalie depth chart. You know, can Aiden Hill keep doing this? How many more injuries can they withstand in that position? Uh, knock on wood. But Jack Eichel in his first playoffs is uh, is really showing up here. Yeah, I think so. And I think... It's not something that will come across in his point totals as well. He is scoring a lot, but he's not scoring as much as someone like Rupe Hintz. But at the same time, like the way he transports the puck up the ice, the way he's battling, the way he's just taking over games. Uh, I think Corey Schneider, he does a lot of tracking stuff. He looks at things like zone entries, zone exits, uh, shot assists, all of that. And Eichel was, phenomenal in the second round against Edmonton and those little things that don't really come up in the score sheet. And I think that is obvious from just watching Eichel and it seems like he is living up to his billing as a big game player. I think even before this, there are a lot of people who said that's the kind of player he is, even though he hasn't had the chance to show it yet at the NHL level, he is showing it now. And I think we might see the best he has to offer in this series. So there's a lot of teams in off-season mode already and looking ahead to free agency. Obviously, there's the Final Four, uh, but a bunch of teams have not even made it to the playoffs, let alone this far. You had your top 50 list out today. Um, it's not a great crop of talent. I mean, I feel like we usually see guys get overpaid, but I almost feel like this year we're going to see a lot of like either aging former stars or strong support players getting 
you know, pretty massive contracts given the market. How would you look at this year's UFA board? Uh, yeah, it's terrible. Um, I <laughs> there are a lot of good players who can help in the middle lineup, but usually you'll have at least a few headlining talents who can be top line players and sometimes even franchise players in the case of Johnny Gaudreau last year. And there's just not any of that this year. I think the best player is probably Dmitry Orlov and he comes with his own <laughs> question marks. And I don't know if a lot of people would say he's a bonafide top pairing guy. I think he is, but the fact that it's debatable and he's the best option around is I think speaks volumes to the class and it could be an interesting I guess experiment in supply and demand because the supply is not great and I don't think the demand is as high either given how little cap space a lot of teams have but we'll see how those two things options available is is Tyler Bertuzzi the best forward available this summer you think I think so, especially with how productive he was in the playoffs for Boston. I think at 5-on-5, five five, he got outchanced and outscored, and that probably sours some of the view on him. And I, when I wrote about it, I was a bit contradictory in my own write-up because the scoring is hard to ignore, but underlying numbers, they weren't super strong. But the edge he plays with, the fact he can play anywhere in the top nine, I think – that makes him a pretty intriguing player. And I think just two years ago, maybe a year ago, he was someone who was very close to a point per game. And I think he still has that in him. And he showed that in Boston. I think that makes him probably the strongest option on the market right now. Probably safe to like, it, it just, it seems hard given the, the Bruins cap situation that they're going to be able to keep him around unless he's going to take some, you know, quote unquote Bruins discount. Yeah, the quote-unquote Bruins discount that exists for their <laughs> captain who's already made a lot of money in his prime and their strong left winger who signed a huge contract before he actually started being this elite winger. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. Where could uh, where could be the most value in this trade list, Dom? Like, are there certain guys that you're looking at that could be the best like bang-for-your-buck candidates? Uh, there was one guy I found. I made him number 51, a super <laughs> secret bonus player. I, okay. I'm i not going to lie to anyone. I've never heard of this player in my life before writing this list. Never watched him, nothing. <laughs> he just popped up beside, like, Zach Parise or something, and I looked up his numbers, and they were, like, weirdly efficient. He feels like a, a low-risk money ball type of player where – you don't know who he is, but maybe he's the next Michael Bunting or something. He is one of those guys who lights up the minors and is sort of small, so you don't know how he'll do in the NHL. But in 30 games, he has a pretty strong ability to score goals. He made the Coyotes better over the last two years in terms of expected goal differential. And, I mean, this year in Tucson, he scored 85 points in 65 games. So for a league minimum contract, I think you can do a lot worse than Mr. Michael Carcone or Carcone. I don't know how to pronounce his name because I don't, I've never heard of him before today. That's really, I covered him um, on the Marlies. I saw, yeah, I saw that. He played for the Marlies. Again, I live in Toronto. Yeah. I, I have no idea. Yeah. 
he's one of those like tweeners that yeah. uh, you know he hasn't really he's he never really got a shot he didn't get a shot with the canucks never really got one with the marlies he also played for belleville like he's just that like he's been kind of a career tweener but i wonder yeah maybe you take a flyer on him he's 26 and he had a his yeah. career best year in the american hockey league last year so yeah he's five nine one seventy. It's the definition of a tweener, and maybe some team gives him a shot and it works out. And if it doesn't, it's what like seven hundred k. Who cares? Yeah, put him in the minors, kind of low risk. Yeah. You probably unless he wants a uh, unless he wants a one way deal. Um, who are the buyer bewares? Dom, anyone the teams need to stay away from? Uh, I I'm really interested to know how much Patrick Kane gets because. He's Patrick Kane, but anyone who saw him last year will tell you he looks nothing like Patrick Kane. Um, other than that, like, I, I'm not sure which way teams are, are going to go here in terms of what the market is. Like, I look at someone like John Klingberg and Evolving Hockey's contract projections, which I used for this piece, suggested he was still someone who could command a $5 million contract, and that is a number I would not even come close to with how poor he is defensively, but I'm really wondering if that is a contract he can actually get in this cap climate, given the last two years of really, really bad defensive results. So in that case, like there are definitely some guys in that vein, but I I wonder if it's something that'll actually happen. All right. Well, lots to dig into as the summer continues. Obviously we have a, a little ways away before free agency, but I appreciate you coming on and giving us the primer and, and talking about the playoffs, Dom. Yeah, anytime for you, buddy. <laughs> okay, thank you. There goes Dom Luschishin. He is a uh, senior national writer at The Athletic, kind of known for his uh, data model and all of the good analytic information that he provides over there um yeah good luck at this eastern conference final canes panthers game one at six o'clock tonight if you're looking for a little bit more playoff hockey to watch obviously you had the wranglers and coachella valley last night uh game five goes tomorrow so lots of hockey if you're you know a hockey fan in calgary a couple little nuggets as it relates to the flames um just some reporting i saw uh kevin weeks reporting that Mitch Love is getting plenty of NHL interest. Obviously, we've heard from Pat Steinberg and other people on this station um, about Mitch Love, you know, getting a look as the next Calgary Flames head coach, regardless of who it becomes the next general manager. It seems like Mitch Love is at the very least going to get a look. And also Frank Saravelli from the Daily Faceoff reporting today on uh, on his daily rundown that he believes we will see a new general manager in both Pittsburgh and Calgary very soon. That goes along with Eric Francis reporting on this station as well, that we're probably going to see some news about the next Flames general manager shortly. Will that be Craig Conroy? 
uh, an internal candidate? Will that be an external candidate, an Eric Tolsky, um, you know, any any of those kind of young up-and-coming options? Brandon Pridham, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs assistant general manager, that remains to be seen. Um, but as it relates to the Penguins, uh, interesting enough, we are going to be joined coming up next on the show by Rob Rossi. He covers the Pittsburgh Penguins for The Athletic. They have... A big GM search, as mentioned, with the Frank News uh, underway in Pittsburgh. They're also looking for a new president of hockey operations. Uh, so we're going to talk to Rob coming up next on the show. We will uh, we'll be right back here on Hockey Central on Sports at 960 The Fan. You're listening to Hockey Central 960 with Haley Salvian on your home of the Flames, Sportsnet 960 The Fan. All right, welcome back to the program. Hockey Central 960 continues. One game on tap tonight. It's the Eastern Conference Final between the Carolina Hurricanes and the Florida Panthers. (laughs) One other battle to keep an eye on. I don't know if it's just me, but the battle between the Panthers and the Hurricanes graphic designers. You know, graphic design is is my real and true passion. And the Canes ones are getting really scary. They started off as really cool, and now they're just kind of freaking me out. Uh, but the one they posted today was super cool. You can check that out on their social. Obviously, the Panthers come back with a response. I think the Panthers are, like, swimming. I think that's why they're scary. Um, Panthers who can survive on land and in the sea. I don't know. Taylor, do you know what that means? Have you seen it? I just saw it earlier. I didn't really get it. I mean, it, you don't need to. It, they're just so good. The Panthers are descending on the hurricane, which means they must be able to survive in the hurricane, which makes that a really spooky kind of animal. I I don't want to think about what's in the ocean, and especially not oh, like a panther in the ocean. I am terrified of the ocean. The one time I went in the ocean, I got stung by a jellyfish. And that was like in the shallow end. So not, not for me. Good. No I more. I like the graphic design, though. <laughs> Do we have Rob Rossi? I think we have Rob. He's our next guest. He joins us now on the Atlas Pizza guest hotline as I uh, move on from my fear of the ocean and my passion for graphic design. Rob, how are we doing? Panther, Panthers can swim. Right, but, like, not in a hurricane. No, nobody can swim in a hurricane. I mean, that would be preposterous. That's like Sharknado stuff there, friend. (laughs) That's really scary. You know what? I watched that movie out of, like, morbid curiosity, (laughs) and it was worse than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, but it's so bad, it's great. (laughs) You're a fan of the film? Oh, yeah. I'm a fan of all of them. There's, like, five versions of them, and I... uh... I say they're great. I mean, as long as you as long as you realize what you're getting into, it's it's absurd joy. It's not for me. I am afraid of all those things. Like I am, I'm afraid of going to aquariums because I think like a shark is going to break the tank and eat me or something. So I have a lot of irrational fears of aquatic animals. I can promise you every. I can promise you every one of the Sharknado films ends better than a Toronto Maple Leaf season. (laughs) <laughs> you know what? I feel like that's a joke that's appreciated here because our producer Cam is a Leafs fan. I think everyone likes to make fun of him. He's not here today. Uh, I think Taylor likes to 
to pile on, though. So I think uh, I think our producer Taylor would appreciate that one, and all the Flames fans who are listening. So what's it like right now for yeah, you, well, Rob? Nothing to do for the first. Nothing of, to do this time of year for the first time in what sixteen years, almost two decades. You bored? Um, yeah, I mean, I was in. Jeez, I was in my late twenties the last time the Penguins missed the playoffs. Um, uh, like then, I mean, um, one of the things I'm doing is trying to figure out who their next GM is going to be. It was a little bit of a uh, clear situation last time. Um, that was after Sidney Crosby's rookie year, but, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to put together, uh, a hockey operations leadership team, uh, with a president of hockey ops and a general manager. And what makes this particularly interesting isn't, I mean, there's a lot of reasons I think it's interesting, but primarily for me, it's that the new owners in Pittsburgh, Fenway sports group, this is really their first chance to sort of put their imprint on the franchise and, it's going to be interesting to see what they value and how they structure the department and who they hand these roles to. And, um, you know, you had reported that they, that the Penguins on their off season to do list are going to be looking to kind of keep that two person structure at the top, top of hockey operations, excuse me. So having that president of hockey ops and then having that general manager, I guess to start with the hockey ops position, one name that you brought up, that was interesting was John Shaka. Obviously, he was the youngest general manager uh, when he was hired by the Arizona Coyotes. He's done serving his suspension now, so he's eligible to work in the NHL again. Um, he was somebody that you raised as an interesting option for a president of hockey operations. What makes him a good candidate? Yeah. Well, I, you know, he fits. Fenway really wants to emphasize analytics. Um, they want to upgrade the analytics department uh, here, both in terms of personnel and in terms of infrastructure. Um, they really want to incorporate that in, through everything in their organization. So depending on how the structure works here, and that's one thing I'm not clear of yet, whether it would be the president of hockey ops overseeing everything and the general manager sort of reporting to them, or the general manager overseeing everything and the president of hockey ops being sort of a, you know, one B so to speak. Um, I think Chica would be a good choice if it's that latter, because um, I think there are some things about the way business was conducted in Arizona that might make it so that um, some of the, some of the perceived issues he had there, maybe they're not as conducive to being a general manager as they are sort of being a, a president. Um, but that way, then maybe you allow you to go with maybe a more traditional uh, general manager who, you know, is a little bit more comfortable doing a lot of sort of the back dealing and everything. I think the Penguins want to try to strike a, uh, a really thin line between the, the two roles. Um, right. They're, after the last regime, they're very hesitant to have sort of one person assuming all power, like mm-hmm. uh, Ron Hextall did. Right. Well, because it's not like having, you know, Brian Burke as the, the veteran president of Hockey Ops who can maybe just be the, you know, he can go in and handle some of the media stuff. And, you know, he can maybe give some advice here and there. It's not like that really worked out too well for the previous regi- regime, as you mentioned. No, I mean, nothing really worked out too well for the previous regime. Um, <laughs> but um, 
No, I mean, I as I've reported in the Athletic, we had a hard time finding anybody in the organization that could any could ever say what Burke did. Um, uh, and I don't mean that as an insult. Like I just mean sure. like his role was that undefined. Like yeah. um, there was no real. Now look, to be fair to the previous regime, they took over amid a pandemic. I mean, it was uh, it was basically three fourths of a season in before you know, or however you want to look, three-fourths of a calendar year before we met them. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, like, got to meet them in person. And um, and certainly they were hired by other owners, so there's, there's all that to take in. But um, I get the sense that Fenway really wants to have somebody involved in this that's going to be non-traditional, very open to metrics, technology, all of those things that are sort of, you assume, are associated with a lot of the names. But also, I think they want somebody in there that has a little bit of an experience to it. Because remember, this isn't an ownership group that has any hockey experience. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, there's a lot to do on this to-do list for the Penguins, as we mentioned it includes that president of hockey operations it also includes trying to make meaningful changes um around improving the roster around the big three who they did kind of keep back last year obviously that starts with hiring the new general manager there's been some interesting candidates for the penguins that might also be interesting for a calgary audience you know this is uh we are going live here in calgary given the flames vacancy um who are some of the top names out there for for gm jobs right now that you think um you know that the penguins have been interested in and i think maybe there's a couple that might have some crossover in calgary even if they are going to be looking at an internal candidate in in craig conroy but maybe for the penguins more specifically who are they who's kind of come to mind for you one of the top guys that came to mind was uh quite frankly kyle dubas who they were going to make a run at if he decided to leave toronto but since that didn't happen they're you know they're already conducting interviews so they're kind of moving on to the the next phase. Uh, a name uh, that's on a lot of people's minds back in Pittsburgh is Jason Botterill. He used to be the GM with the Sabres. He was a very important assistant slash associate general manager in Pittsburgh for their cup teams in 09, 16, 17. He knows the organization very well. Um, uh, I think he would be, I think he is a guy on their radar. Uh, Eric Tolsky uh, for the, um, Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, I don't know why everybody doesn't want to just hire Hurricanes employees right now, um, given what they've <laughs> built. But, um, I mean, I know he's a guy that was uh, was in contention for the job in Chicago last year. Um, I believe he's interviewed with the Penguins. Uh, Matthew Darsh, assistant GM in Tampa Bay, another good organization to look for. And they're looking at a couple people um, from the uh, New Jersey Devils organization. So uh, they've, they've cast a wide net on this, and um, there haven't been a ton of former GMs. The one who, whose name keeps popping up is Mark Bergevin, um, hmm. and there's a lot of reasons to wonder about that, but one of them is Mark does have a familiarity with Pittsburgh having played here. The other thing about, that's interesting about Mark Bergevin is um, he's one of the best friends of Mario Lemieux, and... Mario's a bit estranged from the organization for the first time in, you know, 35 plus years. And I'm not saying that would be a factor with it Fenway, but if one of the two new hires was a person that, you know, maybe helped 
start smoothing things over with Mario, I don't think that would be the worst thing for Fenway either. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting candidate for sure. I think one of the ones that you brought up in Eric Tolsky is is a name that a lot of Flames fans have brought up in this market. I think he should be on most teams' radars who are looking for a new general manager. I mean, he has his hand, fingerprints all over so much of what's happening in Carolina. Obviously, credit to Don Waddell and credit to Rod Brindamore. Um, but I think as we talk about the Carolina Hurricanes and the way that they've been able to overcome the major injuries on their roster. And, you know, how are they still able to keep doing this? You know, a lot of that goes to the front office and the roster that they constructed. And Eric Tolsky played a huge role in that. Um, what do you think makes him a good candidate for a general manager position, whether it's in Pittsburgh or or in Calgary? Why is Tolsky, you know, a name that people should be thinking about? Well, one thing I really like about him is, you know, we have this modern way of doing things where there's a lot of, you know, there's a GM and then there's like sort of a lot of assistants or there's a lot, you know, or you have specialists around. Um, mm-hmm. Carolina runs a small shop. Uh, Don Waddell's the GM, but he also has sort of presidential, you know, president of the franchise duties. He's tied in with business. He oversees all the hockey decisions. They all go through him. But Tolsky's yeah. his right-hand man. And so he has learned a myriad of skills. It's not just he obviously has a analytics background, but he's also become somebody who's very valued at both professional and amateur scouting, how to run mm-hmm. a organization in the minor leagues by being a general manager in the AHL. All of these things that you used to get from traditional assistant general manager candidates when there was just like one or two AGMs on a team, Tolsky does that and or brings mm-hmm. that. So I, I think for either team, yeah, it's, like it's, there's always that question, right? Do you want a former GM, even if the first time the GM had that job, he didn't do that well because he can learn from that experience, or do you want an assistant? And um, I tend to think an assistant is a better way to go because if you find the right assistant, I think they are more in tune with what is required now to make fixed ch- quick changes, excuse me, than a more um, traditional GM who might be more reliant on trusting his gut. Yeah. Yeah. I've been super bullish on, on somebody like Tolsky in particular. I mean, he's involved in all of the player personnel decisions. He oversees pro scouting, as you mentioned, uh, the team's, analytics department helps with contract negotiations salary cap compliance like so many different hockey related matters Tolsky Tolsky kind of does and I find it interesting when you mentioned Don Waddell I'm pretty sure at one point uh, before their outdoor game this year he was like trying to promote and sell tickets like they they really do wear a lot of hats in Carolina and there's, there's reason to believe that somebody like Tolsky could have a lot of transferable and, and translatable skills to a general manager position. Um, we're talking to Rob Rossi from The Athletic. He covers the Pittsburgh Penguins. They have a big GM search. Obviously, some of these names could be of interest to people in Calgary. It seems like both of these GM positions might be filled in the, the coming days, coming week here. Sounds like things are, are moving in the right direction for both of these teams. Um I've got to ask, though, before we run out of time, Rob, like what comes next for the Pittsburgh Penguins? We know that they need the GM. We know they need the president of hockey operations. Like what improvements, once they get those items checked off the list, can they realistically make 
this summer to to improve this roster around Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang? Because they weren't the problem this year. <laughs> right. To my mind, there are three things the new general manager or the new management team has to focus on. Um, one, um, they need to make sure that the GM and the head coach establish communication lines and establish trust. Because I don't think either one of those things existed between Hextall and Sullivan and at the, by the end of the regime. Uh, two, they have to decide on two key players. One is unrestricted free agent Tristan Jari, who um, did not have his best season, was injured a lot, but also might be one of the best UFA availables on the goalie market. Do they want to keep going with him and probably pay him, you know, at least, you know, a 75% increase on his average annual value at 3.5 million. So push that up to about five and a half million to six. Um, Do they want to do that? Also, after July 1st, do they want to try to negotiate an extension with Jake Gensel, who has one year remaining on his contract, or do they want to look at right. Jake Gensel being a guy that they move as part of a trade that can get back more pieces? Um, and the third mm-hmm. thing, um, quite frankly, is this new GM has to decide if he, how he's going to rid the Penguins of at least one tough contract Probably Macau Grandlands, and that might have to involve <laughs> selling ownership on a buyout. Right. It's amazing that that's the one that they need to tr- now try to get rid of, yeah. considering that's who they added after Hextall actually dumped the Kapanen contract. It's like, wow, he moved salary out, and oh no, <laughs> look where he just committed it to. It was an interesting. In it was an interesting week before the trade deadline in Pittsburgh. I will tell you that. <laughs> well, thank you there so much for coming on. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, there a lot no, of go ahead, Rob. No, there just were a lot of moments when I told people this is happening and they hung up on me in disbelief, which is about what you're going to do now. <laughs> so it all works out. Yeah, we're done here, Rob. Thank you so much for this. Okay. You just upset me with, uh, with the reminder of, <laughs> of what Hextall did with that. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Rob. I appreciate it. There goes Rob Rossi. He covers the Pittsburgh Penguins for The Athletic. Not hanging up in disgust. It's not his fault that that's what Ron Hextall ended up doing uh, after he finally shed, you know, valuable, valuable cap. Nobody thought anyone was going to take Kasperi Kapanen's deal off the books, and they did it. And then they brought in someone that they now probably need to shed this summer. It's great. Everything's fine in Pittsburgh. Uh, and that conversation with Rob Rossi is brought to you by Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, using the same secret recipe since 1975. You can dine in at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast, takeout or delivery at 403-248-3344. As mentioned uh, before we brought Rob in and throughout the show, um, you know, Frank Saravalli joined the big show on Sports at 960 The Fan earlier this morning and talked about the open GM position in Calgary, Frank did say, um, you know, he would bet that it's Craig Conroy. He is predicting that it would be Craig Conroy. Um, or not predicting. He's not reporting it's going to be Craig Conroy, but he said, my money would be on Craig. If he's a gambling man, that's where he'd put the money. Uh, he said, quote, I think everybody looks at him uh, kind of universally and says that's someone that's qualified 
to take the next step. Uh, whether or not that becomes official, whether or not that's going to be the way that the Flames go remains to be seen, but we'll continue to keep track of that here on Hockey Central and on Sportsnet 960, your home of the Flames. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. Pat Steinberg's going to join us for the Daily Pat Chat. Uh, so that's going to be here on Hockey Central 960. We will see and talk to everyone tomorrow.